from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. A time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. Alongside my co-host and fellow SBC alum, Corbin Ford, I am Garrett Bougay. And this week, Corbin and I have a special guest making his uh, second appearance on Duncan Dynasty in the last couple of weeks. He's also a sports business classroom graduate, also has worked with the NBA social content department, Simon Sharon Gordon. Simon, thanks so much for, for coming on again. Glad to be back. Hopefully uh, we'll do a few of these this extended offseason. We were just talking before we started here about how it's weird to, like, not have the draft right after the finals. It's like this this month of basketball free activity that you normally don't get. So I guess we got to fill it with like you know the type of philosophical BS discussions we're about to have, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, on on this episode, we're going to be breaking down some some player legacies. Uh, all three of us before we recorded made a list of of five. Uh, players that, that we wanted to discuss we thought were, were interesting and, and either their legacy stock rose or it uh, it dropped off based on the the 2019-20 season. Uh, so first off though guys I, I think uh, I want to hear from both of you in terms of how much you sort of value the regular season versus the postseason uh, and and how much you know one, one playoff run or one great regular season can sort of impact your feelings about a player. So, uh, yeah, either one of you, whoever wants to start, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, well, I mean, look, I think we've we've uh, we've talked before. I mean, when you when you, the question of regular season versus postseason, like I I value the postseason a lot more. Um, I just think it's two different sports and. Uh, I don't. I, I never have bought the idea that like the postseason is just a smaller sample version of the regular season, which to me is kind of the argument for valuing it less, or maybe at least mitigating like its extra value, whatever. However you want to look at that. Um, to me, like yeah, if we had a larger sample of postseason play, that would be great. But we don't, and given that, like I just have to look at the goal of. The sport, the reason everybody's playing it, the, 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 what is set up by the league as the goal, um, and what everyone's kind of buying into, like like the currency of the league, is, is rings, is championships. So like, whoever, uh, you know, what, what what someone does in the postseason to me just says more about who they are as a basketball player because that is the stage at which like everybody's gunning for the same thing and you're facing the best competition and um, no one's really going through the motions the same way. So like that, that's kind of how I break it down with regards to that. Um, in terms of how much do you evaluate one postseason? I mean, we'll get into some of that. I think legacies are never complete until a player's career is over. Um, and I generally like to just give credit for things that players accomplish rather than take away credit for things that players don't accomplish. Um, in other words, if you win a championship, I'll give you credit for that. If you lose the next year, I'm not going to like take away your ring. You know what I mean? That, that's kind of how I go about that. Um, but I'll, I'll throw it to you. Bro. I mean, I would much the same of what you're saying, except like for me, I, I, I maybe lean in a little bit into the regular season. I think you kind of allude to some of it just because there's more games. I mean, you get a very concentrated amount in the postseason. The stakes are a lot higher. You know, can you perform um, at the toughest levels? And that's clearly what the postseason is. A lot of stake has to go into that. But, like, for me, I, I do look into the endurance of the 82-game season and how that, you know, how a player performs over there. Although you can't take that 
um, and, and, and set it as law because, I mean, I talk about LeBron all the time in terms of MVP voting. And if you were to judge Le- LeBron by just a regular season MVP, like a lot of it is other players, you know, before outperforming or whatever the case may be. But a lot of it is that the way that LeBron plays in the regular season and the way he ramps up that play in the postseason are two totally different things. Whereas you could, by extension, compare that to someone like a James Harden whose impact in the postseason is never as much as it is during the regular season or a host of other players. And so I don't know what the percentage I would place on it, but you would definitely have to consider the postseason more. Um, the only time I may make special considerations is maybe if it's like a, a good player on a bad team and they're not getting as many opportunities in the postseason, in which case I think there's a little more nuance to it because on the one hand, you, you know, if you're not good enough to lead you in the playoffs or be there consistently, it's hard to measure your, your complete legacy. On the other hand, I, I do think it is set, set for something that, you know, your work shows during the regular season. Yeah, I um, you know, I'm I'm kind of uh yeah, seem, seemingly between the two of you. Yeah, I, I certainly think the the postseason is is what's more important, but yeah, just given the fact that what 80 to 85% of all of the games that we see are regular season games, uh yeah, I, I I do I do put some something into that. Now, if yeah, if if I had to put a ratio to it, maybe I'd be Anywhere between 51 to 60 percent, I value the postseason and the you know 40 to 41 percent regular season. But you know you, you talk about somebody like LeBron and Corbin just just brought him up, and, and I'm sure we're going to to talk about him in this episode. Uh, but uh, you know what he just did in the regular season, committing to the defensive end of the of the court. And really, you know, locking in and, and being there day in and day out during the regular season, making sure the Lakers were a dominant defensive team. I think he recognized because Davis is there, that's kind of where that team, uh, you know, the, the potential lied. And so that, that really, I think, helped them, aided them in the postseason. So to me, there's, there's a lot in terms of the regular season sort of being a building block. And that's why I still value the regular season because... You know, you, you talk about the, the Michael Jordans and, and how he he brought he made his teammates and he brought his team to play every night and that sort of dedication, that commitment translates into postseason success. That that's a great point, and I mean I think we're gonna get into that. I know I'm gonna get into that with at least one guy I have on my list kind of uh, how the regular season informs what happens in the postseason for better or for worse uh, in that regard i do put a, a lot of weight on the regular season okay yeah so uh corbin why don't you get us started and uh select the the first guy that you want to talk about all right so i, I almost feel like i had to bring him up just because of his moniker and i think that there was something to be said for his recent championship and that is rajon rondo a uh, playoff rondo i had a I wanted to have this discussion with y'all in general, but I think he's another player that, uh, a much lesser extent than James in terms of, I don't want to say a master of the game by James and knowing when like to dial it back or you know to put out not minimal effort but sub sub 100 percent and then push it to the playoffs. I feel like Rondo has had some of that. His impact is just definitely more profound in the postseason, the regular season. And also, he's had the misfortune of, you know, some clashes in Dallas and bouncing on different teams of Sacramento, Chicago, New Orleans that have kind of put his legacy in a bad light before this recent postseason run, where I think that, I mean, we would all agree, uh, he was a big boon to the Lakers winning the whole, not only, you know, in his first uh, round appearance against the Trailblazers after he recovered from that thumb injury, but then especially, you know, in later rounds, he played great defense on James Harden in the second round against the Rockets, and then we all know what he did in the finals. So I kind of want to throw him out there. Similarly, I think legacy's changing, not just because of the whole, you know, sports trivia, uh, second player to win with the Lakers and the Celtics, although I do like the ring of that. But, like, in general, I feel like at, at an age where, you know, he was, he looked to me like he lost, he definitely has lost his step. He looked to me last year that he could be a very capable player, but I didn't know if that was still around. Is that, uh, I guess, the question I present to y'all? He's on my list of someone whose legacy's changed, even if it's only incrementally, um, for the better. But does this playoff series or playoff performance further prove that there is like a playoff round or that there is a history of Rondo elevating his game? Or how much that do you believe is, is true and, and how much that's possibly fabricated because i mean there's a certain element of it that i can kind of swing both ways i'll just jump in quick here i'll throw it to you garrett if you want to get more into the question of like how true is it that he elevates his game Mm -hmm. um but i just just in terms of 
has his legacy changed? I would I would say unequivocally yes. Just just because this is a guy who, for all of the success he had early in his career, and look, I, I was not expecting to discuss Rondo on here, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you brought him up. I'm very glad because like it's true he he was a four time All Star in Boston. Um, looked like he was just entering his prime. Uh, the injuries started to hit, obviously, and then his career went downhill just about as fast as anyone like at that level. I mean, people thought of him as a top 10 player in the league. A lot of people did. Um, and by, you know, a couple years later, he's in Dallas and he's like clashing with Rick Carlisle of playing time and to, like all this stuff starts happening. Um, and then he just bounces around team to team for several years. Um, we got that first little glimmer of playoff, playoff Rondo as a thing with the Bulls, and then we got a larger taste of it with the Pelicans. But, but this, I feel like, is the run that really kind of vindicates his career and, and brings him back to this point where it's like, okay, we're not necessarily going to just remember Rajon Rondo as this really good young player who was derailed by career and possible like personality prickly issues like that. Like this it kind of brings his career full circle and, and maybe we'll remember him more as a, as a winner than anything else. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting topic because, you know, I, I don't think we're we're really, you know, he's he's at a different level than some of the guys that we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, but, uh, you know, he's a guy that, you know, when he won the championship in 2008, he was what, arguably the, the fourth best player? I, I think fourth would be the highest he would be on that Celtics team. Uh, he he was one of the top maybe two guys on that 2012 conference finals team that when the Celtics uh, took the Heat to seven. Um, but uh, you know you talk about he's he's now won two championships both as either the fourth guy and in, in uh, as far as the Lakers maybe the sixth or seventh guy. But but yeah the. The, the fact that he's been able to be a contributor in the playoffs, he did it a few years back uh, also with Anthony Davis uh, in, their, uh, in their run where they swept the Blazers in round one and then uh, lost to the Warriors. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's consistently been pretty good as a playoff performer. But there, there is an element of, you know, I certainly do believe in playoff Rondo, but I, I don't know how much of a compliment that actually is. Uh, it, it almost, to me, feels like, He's just not trying in the regular season, and then the playoff Rondo is the Rondo that's trying. So, do you downgrade him for his poor performance, you know, in the regular season, or do you give him a ton of credit for doing what maybe he could be doing all the time? Well, I think that's what's interesting because you bring up players who raise their game up in the postseason, just in general. Brought up LeBron, bringing up Rondo. How many uh, players? can do that, you know, all along and just don't, whether they're reserving their body, whether there's just lack of interest, whatever the case may be. I know Rondo's offered that he has more time to focus on a specific, you know, uh, team's tendencies and whatnot, but a lot of what we see him change, I think, most of all is effort. But in general, how much of that do we knock on a player for not doing that in general, or do we put that on for, for raising their game? Like a player like Jamal Murray. Now, this could be, I mean, I'm sure we're probably going to talk about him later, but in terms of someone who... I mean, he'd have potential to be like this. Maybe not exactly 50-point burgers again and again and again, things like that. But in terms of being like a, a pretty efficient guy who can run the offense for, for strong stretches and not be as inconsistent as he was during most of his, you know, Denver time up through this last postseason. Like, what is the the standard that we hold players to for raising their game up when they can? Or is it just a matter of circumstance through the postseason? Or, you know, you'll see that a lot with young um, younger players. Have they truly, quote-unquote, arrived? Like, the whole perspective around that, I think, is interesting. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, Rondo is, you know, again, I, I, you can't take away the fact that he has been a contributor now on on multiple championship teams, uh, you know, a dozen years apart. I mean, that is that is significant, uh, and uh, you know, he he was he was crucial for the Lakers, and also I think you know he was really a, a perfect fit for this team given, especially after Bradley decided to uh, not go into the bubble, that they just desperately needed another ball handler. And uh, Rondo was able to, was able to do that and, and, you know, take a little bit of pressure off of LeBron. Of course, LeBron was asked to do so much on this team, 
but just to, to uh, be able to, to put the ball in the hands of, of a, a veteran point guard that makes the right reads, makes the right plays, uh, you know, and, and also can, can set up the likes of, of Davis and Howard for easy buckets, he, he was invaluable to this, to this Lakers championship run. And, and also, I mean, um, there's just the question of, like, we don't, I don't think anyone actually thinks Rajon Rondo is a good three-point shooter, but two years ago or three years ago in New Orleans, I think two years ago, um, he shot over 40% from three in their, uh, run, you know, their sweep of Portland and, and eventual loss to the Warriors, and then he shot over 40% again this year, so his last two postseasons, he's, he's shot over 40% from three, albeit against, uh, you know, defenses that are just begging him to shoot, and uh, if, I mean, I, I kind of want to transition this into my first guy. Absolutely. Uh, so, like, that that makes me think of Andre Iguodala, right? Like, a guy who uh, also has a bit of that, like, playoff rep, where it's like, this is a guy who saves his best for the playoffs, and, and it, it's... Uh, you made a great point, Garrett. It's related to effort, right? It's like at this stage in Iguodala's career, he just can't give 100% effort in the regular season and the postseason, and he knows he's on a team that is going to make the postseason, so he saves his best for the playoffs. Um, and like Iguodala, I think, is still at a higher level probably than Rondo, or, or maybe a comparable level at this point. He was certainly at a much higher level during the Golden State years. Um, but yeah, do we inflate his value a little bit? Because, like, what if what if Andre Iguodala was always that good? Like, what if this was a younger Andre Iguodala who was playing exactly the same way in the regular season? Like, would that almost make what he did in the playoffs less impressive because we expect it? Um, that's an interesting question. But, but then you get to a guy, like my first guy that I want to talk about, which is Kawhi Leonard. Um, Kawhi is kind of the extreme example, I think even more so than LeBron James, of a guy who's like created this dichotomy between who he is in the regular season and who he is in the playoffs. Uh, he had almost created this kind of mystique, right? Like, he's just this all-time postseason god uh, who, like, you know, he has, he has to load manage throughout the regular season. He can't really play a full slate. He doesn't play huge minutes, whatever it is. Um, but then he's just like had this reputation after, understandably after last year he had this all-time postseason run, um, and carried a team that no one was really picking to win the title, to the title, uh, beating Milwaukee, beating Philly, and eventually beating the Warriors. Um, but then I don't know, like I don't know what this postseason and and season leading up to it does to Kawhi's reputation because. First of all, like, I, I don't care that he blew a 3-1 lead. I kind of, I alluded to this earlier. Like, I, I'm not, like, I'm not going to take away from someone because of a failure. Like, to me, it's just, what have you accomplished? Um, and, like, I also, I also just don't believe in, I don't believe in the concept of blowing a 3-1 lead. Like, I think that people think of it like blowing a, a lead in a game. Where, like, if you're up big in a game, if you're up 20, if you're up 30, like, the only way for you to lose is by, like, fucking up terribly. Um, whereas if you lead a series, like, the next game still starts 0-0. Like, you still have, like, if you can just get beat. Uh, so, I, and I think the Clippers just got beat three straight games. I don't, I don't understand, like, the idea that they, like, they could have just won the series by running out the clock. That's, that's not how it works when you, when you haven't, you know... Um, you, you guys get that concept, but, but like, it's, so it's less that they blew the lead and it's more just that this Clippers team, which on paper, like everyone thought was the best team in the league and like the champion, the heavy championship favorite, uh, got eliminated in the second round by a Nuggets team that like no one had picked to be a championship contender. Uh, so like, again, that doesn't drop Kawhi it's not like oh he lost to the Nuggets he's a fraud like he's worse than player X and player Y um everybody has these losses LeBron has had these losses Curry's had these losses uh I actually was trying to think of KD had and I don't really think K 
KD has had a loss, like an inexplicable loss to a, an underdog playoff opponent. But at the same time, like, I also don't think Durant has won on the level of those other guys either. Um, but the point being, now that Kawhi has kind of entered, like, the world of playoff mortals rather than this, like, you know, like, mystical figure he was... Then it brings into question, okay, well, if he's if he's just one of these guys now, uh, his postseason resume has gone to just, like, normal great instead of all-time great, maybe. Uh, then does it start to matter what he doesn't give you during the regular season? If all that rest and all that load management is for him to just be, like, this unbeatable playoff cheat code, and he wasn't that this year, and look, like, this was a weird year. You could just chalk it up to the bubble, the pandemic, whatever. But but those are the questions I'm I'm personally going to start asking. I, I kind of agree with you on that. I mean, I was a lot more critical about the Clippers and specifically Kawhi's performance, especially when, you know, Paul George had an uneven performance through that, where Kawhi, I think he had one game against Dallas, but, like, right up through until, you know, that last game seven, I feel like he'd been strong throughout the postseason for the Clippers, especially, you know, they were going through um, Montrezl Howell being ineffective, Lou Williams not being able to buy a shot. Um, um, so you could say the same for Marcus Morris. Uh, we already mentioned Paul George. So I, I did look a little bit that way because I thought, you know, I, I'm, I, I guess I take the opposite approach when you having a 3-1 lead. I think that if you worked that well to get that advantage, that you can at least put up a fight in those games. Not only did I feel the Clippers did that to a point, but that lead several times after being up 3-1. And each time lost it, it did look. I'm sure there was some obvious um, uh, uh, schematic changes. One, uh, just against Doc Rivers by giving Montrezl Howell so many minutes. But it just in the, in the actual game, especially game seven, uh, uh, that was a major knock to me because you're waiting for someone, anyone to step up to stem the tide You know uh, that Denver's putting up to kind of get the Clippers back on track to, to, to mount some sort of, of defense, some sort of leadership. And I didn't see that from Kawhi or anyone in the Clippers. So I definitely knocked him on that. Do I say that in a, in, a, in a spot to say, oh, he knocks down four or five tiers? No, but I say that to go in the same vein that, that you kind of alluded to already, which is that, you know, he was saved. He had gotten a lot of rest, and a lot of that was because of that, you know, I, I forgot the, the, the exact wording for it, but basically his injury that is degenerative. There you go. So a lot of that's just medical, but at the same time, if the concept is to save him for that, then you expect world beater Kawhi, and, and you didn't see that. And, a lot as well, I think, to last year, I think that was perfect for a team in the Raptors that just needed just elite shot-making ability. You know what I mean? Playmaking they had, defense they had, they needed a role, and Kawhi fit it perfectly. And uh, because he did that and then some, a lot of the Raptors' success was thrown on Kawhi that I thought was a little unfair to Toronto. And then that same success came over here to the Clippers. So it's weird for me because I think that some of his... Some of his success, it, a lot of it goes to him, of course, but I also think it's a byproduct of being on solid teams and having a um, great framework around him where he could be the best at his specific role and do that 100% and, and just be dominant in that. But maybe it's not as uh, as as a mystical thing as the, the narrative was for him to be. Speaking to... To Simon's point, Simon, you, you were essentially saying that you don't really say, okay, this guy failed, so I'm going to knock him down a peg. Uh, I, I actually do, and, you know, given that Kawhi now has really has two Game 7 duds on his resume, you talk about the 2015 series against, uh, against the Clippers, and then this series, Game 7 against Denver, they were both really poor performances. Uh, you know, so, so I do hold that against him. I hold it against Steph Curry for his performance in Game 7 of the 2016 Finals. I hold it against LeBron for his 2011 Finals performance. Uh, I, I think it matters. The, the, the thing that I, I would like to get your guys' take on is, you know, obviously the Clippers had the 3-1 lead and, and the Nuggets ended up winning three straight. But when I look at the, you know, whatever you want to call it, the collapse, the meltdown, the, uh, you know, Denver just uh, coming back and winning three straight games, there was a lot going on with the Clippers beyond just Kawhi's performance. You look at Montrez Harrell left the bubble because his uh, his grandmother passed away, and he never got back into the shape and, and never got to the level that he was playing at prior to the shutdown. You had Lou Williams uh, going to a strip club and then being forced into a longer quarantine, and, and he never was quite the same level of player. 
you had Landry Shamut uh, getting the coronavirus, and uh, he didn't look the same. Doc Rivers continued to play uh, the likes of uh, of those of all of those guys, despite the fact that they weren't producing. Then you you add on top of that Patrick Beverly getting hurt and Paul George just being flat-out awful for the entire postseason. Not just one game, the entire playoffs. He had a 47.9% effective field goal percentage in that postseason run. So I ask you guys, I mean, how much do you put on Kawhi for the Clippers not uh, getting to the conference finals versus all of those things that went wrong around him? Uh, okay, so I mean, I'll be really quick. It, it might come up hot take. I just put a portion around him only because... I feel like, and maybe some of this is narrative, in narrative only or whatever, but being that Kawhi was easily the best player, sort of had kind of control over who, not only what team he chose and the cast he chose to join, but also who he chose as running mate. So I'm thinking, okay, you knew this position when you came in. Now, the fact that they all laid massive deaths, I mean, that's how that can't be replicated to that effect. But I, I think it was just a monumental collapse of epic proportion, and I think that by getting that 3-1 lead, and I guess, you know, it seemed like Denver played their West best from from you know playing down. By the watch of those games, it just seemed like there was a, a, a script that was flipped. Like it actually seems just like a, a, a quintessential three-one deficit would be that Denver was getting blown out a couple times, had a couple close games, and all of a sudden it just got reversed. So you know, I think that Lou Williams having his issues in that extended well before the second round. You know, Montrez helping out of shit, that's a little different because of his extenuating circumstances, but then I look at some of that on coaching for Doc Rivers to play him so many minutes matched up against Nikola Jokic. Like, that made no sense to me. Um, going down the line, I mean, some of the, the, the shot-making or lack thereof were issues. A lot of them say, okay, best players, then look back and go, you know what? Even going down, Kawhi did what he could. Because it is a team sport at the end of the day, but of course the NBA and basketball in general is, is a star-driven league, and it's something you turn that person and go, you know what? He did this, and this guy did this. I feel like Kawhi kind of blended it. I think that, like you said, the last, the last same seven, that was the only one I can remember, where he didn't play, he wasn't, you know, shooting off the side of the backboard, but, like, do you remember what he did? Did he leave his, you know, fingerprint on the game? Did he even attempt to? And I didn't see that. Yeah, I mean, it kind of, this is, it's a culture issue, right? Like, we're talking about the, the identity of a team, and... Fair or not, like that does get prescribed usually to that team's best player and its leader. And I mean, I, I always am, am willing and happy to factor this kind of stuff into how I evaluate a player, especially when, I, when we're talking legacy and not just like who's the better player on the court, who's more talented, who's a better shooter, passer, defend, whatever. It's like we're talking about the player's overall legacy here. Um, Kawhi did demand that the Clippers make this trade for Paul George. That was a you know, that his signing was contingent on that. Um, so, no, I can't fully divorce how Paul George played from, like, from, you know, what responsibility does Kawhi Leonard have for the Clippers losing? I can't fully do that, especially because we, we knew that Paul George had a pension for this. Uh, and then, also, we're talking about Lou Williams. Like, would he have been so non... I mean, obviously, Montrez Harrell, that's like a family tragedy. That's totally separate. But would... Would Lou Williams have been so kind of nonchalant had he been on a team that had a much more, like, had he been on the Miami Heat, a team, a totally different culture that obviously stems far beyond Jimmy Butler, but Jimmy Butler is a much different kind of leader than Kawhi Leonard at the same time, right? Um, the Clippers had this attitude throughout the season, which was basically like, we don't really need to take this seriously because we have so much talent that we're just going to turn it on when we need to. Um, and, and this speaks to, again, the point we were talking about earlier uh, that you brought up, Garrett, like forming, like the regular season forming habits. Uh, the Clippers formed bad habits this season. Kawhi Leonard as a player who rests a lot um, was, was, I think, kind of a leader of, of that casual attitude, and it clearly came back to bite them. See, I mean, you, you know, you, you talk about last year with, with Toronto, Kawhi sat out with the Raptors plenty of games, and because they won, uh, we weren't saying that they were developing bad habits. So I feel like that's almost a, more of a results-oriented thought process where, you know, the Clippers were top five on both ends of the court 
during the regular season, and that was despite having just, you know, they, they didn't have their, their full complement of players for, what, like uh, less than a dozen games for the entire season. So uh, to me, I thought they, you know, they took the regular season pretty seriously. You have to to be top five on both ends of the floor. It's just they, you know, they they did exactly what Toronto did the year before in, in resting Kawhi to make sure that he was healthy when it mattered. And also they just had so many injury issues you know, you, you talk about the, the difference between the Clippers prior to the shutdown and in the bubble. To me, the main thing is the bench play. You know, prior to the shutdown, the Clippers were arguably the best, had the best bench in the entire league. And in the bubble, really, like, who did they have to trust? Really, it was it was basically just Jermichael Green. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. You make, a, you make a great point about the Raptors. I, I push back a tiny bit, which is just that, like, while it, it may be results-oriented to, like, fully say, like, prescribe the Clippers' failures to that, uh, I think it's also, like, not fair to give, you know, like, Toronto did a lot to go against, um, like, that was a culture that was already built, essentially, right? Like, the, the Raptors um, had all these guys in place, they had been playing together for a long time, and Kawhi kind of was traded there and slotted in. He didn't even really want to be there, um, but but he was kind of forced to buy in. Uh, and and Nick Nurse also just did a, did a lot to set that team's attitude. Um, whereas Doc Rivers has been known in the past to kind of coddle his stars, not hold them accountable the same way that a Nick Nurse would. Maybe not even hold them accountable the same way he would other guys on the team. Uh, so, so it's a it's a culmination of factors. I, I don't think Kawhi is blameless in it. Uh, it would, would kind of be my my point, but I also think you're right to to just kind of say it starts with him is is maybe a bit of a reach. Yeah, I mean, and if we're uh, you know I I, uh, I asked you guys to just do lists of players, but uh, you know if if we wanted to at some point, uh, you may, maybe even at the end, if we wanted to go in and, and talk about coaches as well, we, we can, but I think Doc Rivers would be one of those guys that I think he's, his legacy has been damaged from this playoff run. And, you know, I would go as far as to say uh, prior to this, I would have considered him. And I think most people would have considered him a, you know, a top 10 coach in the league, but now I would say he's, He's probably average, or even maybe slightly below average, based on the performance he showed. Oh wow! I mean, oh, I, I guess I have to, I'm saying that like, oh, I didn't think of that because you're right. I just inherently have Doc Rivers in my top ten elusive coaches, but now I gotta really run back and see. But I, I would nominate. I mean, if just throwing out coaches, we kind of went that way. I, I definitely had some uh, the take on Brad Stevens being kind of over in the postseason, just because I think his lack of adjustments, um, and even ones that I don't consider myself a, a basketball. Uh, strategist by any stretch of imagination, but even things I would say, hey, you know what, that might be a good idea to do. It seems like the Celtics have struggled in the past couple of years in in, in responding, um, you know, on the fly in the playoff series. Late. I just feel like Brad Stevens is another one that lack of adjustments can come back to bite him. But anyway, I, I mean, like you said, we can talk about coaches uh, a little later. I have another guy that kind of throw out that's maybe a bit person in this list, but um, another Laker, another guy who I, I think uh, the Lakers just had all these old guys who have been around for a bit and whose legacy is like, Really didn't hinge on this championship, but the championship really helped them. Um, and I want to throw out Dwight Howard on there. I think that we already knew that he was a pretty much surefire Hall of Famer just because of this, uh, what he did with the Olympics, what he did with the Magic, his the bulk of his career then, you know, his multiple All-Star uh, appearances, all of that. Just the, the summation of his career up to this point, I think, would make him Hall of Famer easily, even without this championship here. But, I mean, he'd have, just like Rondo, um, probably, well, not probably, uh, a little bit more as far as friction in locker rooms, bouncing around from team to team. You know, I think it was Houston, Charlotte, Washington. I'm, I'm missing another in Atlanta. Um, a bunch of teams. And then, not only that, but I think, at least in my head for sure, wondering if he started a place in this league with the way that, you know, the five position is going in the NBA and how Dwight Howard, while still, you know, physically imposing and athletically is still very much legit, is almost a dinosaur in this new or newer NBA. So I thought that this was kind of the beginning of the end. And, and now, you know, from this from this playoff from his playoff performances with the Lakers this past off this past season, but also just throughout this season with the Lakers, not only is he rejuvenated, um, and not only is he looked rejuvenated, but also, he, I mean, he's definitely going to be in demand this offseason from several teams. And 
I'm pulling this up right now. Uh, 59.9% true shooting for his career. So basically 60%. He shot 69.6% true shooting this year, but like shattering his previous career high. Um, and he did this at age 34. And it just makes you like think, like, what could this guy have been in his prime if he had this attitude in his prime? Like, like he finally started playing like he should have always been playing and even though he is like a shell of his former self athletically uh he's still such an athletic freak like that even at age 34 he was just dominant in his role as like a log finisher a guy who just you know cleans stuff up around the rim and dominates on the boards and protects the paint like he, he was he just played that role to perfection and so willingly this year i mean almost too willingly at times when he starts just like taking hard fouls um uh but but you have to respect it i mean i i loved watching dwight this year and uh yeah i totally agree with you he's he's shown us something that he didn't show us before it's also just kind of bittersweet because like this we, i would have loved to see it years ago Right, and it's not even it's not even just like him accepting this in his prime. It's accepting it from age thirty to thirty four. It would have been great, um, you know. It's uh, yeah. It's it's almost more frustrating than it is exciting. I mean, the the one thing I will say, and given that you know, yeah, he he was the the backup center on a championship team. He he had some moments in the playoffs, Ethan. I think game four against Denver. He uh, he had a really big performance and was was a key in that dis- in that uh, crucial game, uh, but uh, you know it's it's another sign that like yeah despite the fact that as as you said Simon he's a shell of his former self, he's still you know even a sixty percent of what he used to be in terms of his athleticism Dwight Howard is still a, a really valuable player uh, and yeah if he continues to accept this role moving forward. Uh, yeah, he could he could be a positive contributor, a positive role player for for good teams for a few more years, I think. But I will say, you know, just because he accepts this role and does it with LeBron James and Anthony Davis on a title team, does not necessarily mean that if a team pays him uh, more than the minimum next season, that that's just going to be the exact same Dwight that we get. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I saw. I was thinking about that myself. Looking, at, I think there was talk about him possibly going to, um, um, or, or possibly receiving interest from the Warriors. I'm like, ah, I mean, interest, like you said, is very much personality based, and, and and whether he can repeat that rejuvenation because you know he, he's at this point theoretically said, hey, I've proven that I can still play at a high level. I've proven that I'm still in demand. I've gotten my championship. Now he's going to rest those laurels or or continue that level of play and that level of uh, lack of better word desperation that he showed. Um, through most of his tenure here with the Lakers. I mean, that's if, if he, of course, doesn't return. So, yeah, it remains to be seen. Well, yeah, I, uh, I'll mention my uh, first guy on my list, and uh, it's a fellow big, and that is Nikola Jokic. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, when you talk about him now, this is the second consecutive playoffs where he has been absolutely brilliant. I'll just quickly read off his playoff stats. Uh, from the last two years. In 2019, he was at 25 points a game, 13 rebounds, over 8 assists, nearly 60% true shooting on 28 usage. And then in these past playoffs in Orlando, 24.4 points per game, 10 rebounds, 5.7 assists, 61.4% true shooting on 29.3% usage. So, you know, you, you talk about guys that can maybe have one postseason and and have it be kind of a career highlight. Well, he's done it back-to-back years now. He also has shot the ball well from three for back-to-back postseasons, shooting it at 43% in the 2020 playoffs and at 39% in 2019. So, you know, you you factor in that this guy, we already know he's a pretty good floor raiser. The Nuggets were on pace to win 54 games prior to the shutdown. They won 54 games in 2018-19. And, and they did so, you know, and Jokic did so as the leader, as the team's best player. And, and that was despite, a, a, you know, a Jamal Murray that was nowhere near the Jamal Murray that we saw in Orlando. So he's a, he's a really good floor raiser. And then we saw in these playoffs that 
he has such a versatility to his offensive game that against Utah, against Rudy Gobert, when Rudy Gobert was was taking away the paint, he was able to just be a stretch five, especially, and, and be a complementary piece around Jamal Murray, who was playing really well. And then when Denver needed that superstar performance, he brought it in Game 7 against the Jazz. He brought it in Game 7 against the Clippers. He also was terrific uh, down the stretch of Game 2, despite uh, the Nuggets coming up short due to Davis's shot. But I am just so impressed with uh, Nikola Jokic's level of play. And, and to me, he's a guy that, uh, that continues to rise up my personal rankings. So... So conflicted here. Like I, I don't want to go against Jokic because, like I, I was equally as amazed with what he did this postseason, and have like agree with everything you said first of all, and just think like, yeah, he's done it two postseasons in a row. Um, there was kind of the argument you could have made last year, where it's like, yeah, but that Spurs, you know, he's going up against Lamarcus Aldridge, and then. Uh, up against uh, a Blazers team without Yusuf Nurkic, like is he facing the stiffest competition defensively? Then this year he he faces Rudy Gobert and Anthony Davis in two of his three series, and and a very good Clippers defense, although they, they're kind of soft at the center position, um, and still puts up monstrous numbers. The only thing, and this is just where I'm like, I just don't know how to feel about this. I've, I've kind of been grappling with it, like honestly just in, in prep for this pod um like ad is obviously the best big man in the game still i think i think he proved that in, in the conference finals and, and throughout this postseason i think Jokic would probably be number two on that list but but ad is that guy who can like really give Jokic problems on both ends right we saw in the first round with gobert that Gobert was, was able to give him a lot of problems actually on, on the offensive end. Like, he, he had a huge offensive series. Um, Jokic cannot really defend the pick and roll all that well. And uh, and they came, and the, the Nuggets came with a Mike Conley buzzer beater of, of going home in round one. They were also down 3 1 in that series and I believe outscored in that. But, like you said, Jokic had a monstrous offensive series. He had the game winning basket in that game seven. Uh, and then he was just magnificent against the Clippers. But then we saw him face AD in the conference finals, and he was good. I, he, he averaged 21.8 points per game on 61.6% true shooting. Uh, not spectacular, but, but quite efficient still. Um, but Davis put up 31 on 67% true shooting against him, and he wasn't guarding him that whole time. But that's kind of the point, right? Like you don't, you, you can't have him, you can't have Jokic guarding AD. So, so I guess my question to you guys is like, AD is a unicorn. Like, you're not gonna face a lot of guys like that. But as the league continues to become a unicorn league, are you going to have to face an AD type player more years than not to win a championship? Whether that be Anthony Davis himself in the West, whether that be Giannis if you get to the finals or if Giannis comes to the West, um, uh, even Kristaps Porzingis, who like is nowhere close to those guys skill-wise, but his profile, Matt, is the type of guy that, that Jokic could have trouble with. How do you guys feel about that? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting question. You know, when you talk about Jokic's teammates and, and Anthony Davis, and, and you just rightfully said that, that that AD, uh, at least from a score, pure scoring perspective, outplayed Jokic. I, I will also mention that Jokic uh, works so well as kind of the hub of the offense that, that Davis doesn't really have to do on the Lakers. Um, so, you know, just comparing pure, like, points per game uh, is doesn't really uh, to- show the total value that Jokic brings to the table. Uh, but... But at the same time, yes, he, he's going to be challenged year in, year out. You've got Porzingis in the West. You've got Anthony Davis in the West. Uh, and, uh, you know, who knows who's going to, to develop in, in years to come. But, you know, you, you, the, the thing for me that was uh, especially difficult for Jokic in the Lakers series was that, um, you know, they are so unique in that they can throw out 
a Dwight Howard to try and just rough, ruffle uh, Jokic's feathers and get him into foul trouble. LeBron and Davis are constantly attacking the rim. And, and really, Denver lost a couple of those games, I thought, in that series just because Jokic uh, was, was unable to, to uh, stay out of that foul trouble. For the series, um, the, the Nuggets had a 122 offensive rating and a 113 defensive rating when Jokic was on the floor. So when he was actually out there, I thought the, the Nuggets were, were basically even uh, with, with the, the, the NBA champions. And um, you, you speak to uh, Gary Harris and not having Will Barton. They didn't get a ton of production outside of, of Murray and Grant on that roster. They, they got some occasional performances from, from Porter Jr. But I, I'm, uh, I'm under the assumption that the Nuggets are going to continue to improve their roster, not only potentially by acquiring more talent, but also just because they're so young, they're going to get better internally. So, yeah, I... I am, you know, so impressed with what Jokic and the Nuggets accomplished, and, and I'm very bullish on their future. I, I kind of have to agree. I mean, I feel like I kind of agree with both. It's kind of the, the standard third-person thing to say. But, like, I thought on one hand, the Nuggets, it wasn't even, like, it wasn't even traditional the way to even judge them. Like, I feel like the margin of error, you know, they skated by, like you said, in a very close first-round uh, series against Utah. We saw uh, what they were doing in the second round against the Clippers, and yes, a lot of that was the advantage of, of Jokic against you know whatever uh, remnant of a front court plus Jermichael Green that the Clippers had to offer. But I feel like his impact was pretty instrumental throughout. This is the second year his shooting. Garrett, you brought up what was strong for a second second of the year um, from three, and I think that also helped immensely. But I, I think that he's like at the upper echelon of the bigs. I definitely would say you know Anthony Davis. Um, Gobert, I, was, I mean, I'm trying to think of another big that has given, I mean, there's one other guy, I'm sure, that's given him issues in the past, that, like, outside of two or three people, you would say, okay, you know what, he's solid on all ends. Now, do I look at that as saying, like, oh, a great postseason player in general? I I, I don't, I hesitate to go that far. Um, I think he's had a great two postseasons, but I don't know if that's, like, what I'm looking at as the standard for Jokic, and maybe that's just because I look at the Nuggets in general. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what to make of them come the postseason, because this year you could say, okay, it was the, the postseason that Jamal Murray went off, and obviously Jokic played well, and then last year, you know, it was a scrappy team that had different people coming together. Again, Jamal Murray came alive at certain moments, but I, I just don't know. All that to say, nothing, I guess, except that I, I feel pretty confident Jokic being an upper echelon big. I don't know if I've looked at the postseason um to remake what I thought about him in the same way that I would, let's say, Jimmy Butler, who I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah, like, I, I also want to say, like, I'm I'm just playing devil's advocate for, a lot, for like, a large part of what I'm saying. Like, I, I, I believe that it might be true. I have these questions, but I also agree with, like, everything you said about him, Garrett. Like, I, I mean, I'm just confused because this team, like, like you said, Corbin, they is is this really who Jamal Murray is going to be moving forward? And if not, I mean, they would have certainly lost to, to Utah if Jamal Murray didn't have a huge series. Um, and so then what is this Denver team? But at the same time, like, if this is who Jamal Murray is and if Michael Porter Jr. like takes another step forward and if, if Will Barton is back and all that, like, I could see the Nuggets winning the title <laughs> next year. So, like... I, I have no idea what to make of them. I do know that Jokic had an amazing postseason, and I also do think like his game does translate to the postseason on the offensive end. I'm pretty certain of that because of how much movement he kind of facilitates and how how movement and improvisation and just familiarity with each other. It's so hard for a defense to figure that offense out over the course of a series because. It, it, there aren't really like tricks to figure out. It's just, it's just you know, you you are the offense is always one step ahead, and if you guys are that connected and you have that level of passing and spacing and cutting, um, I always love that kind of stuff in the postseason. I think that's why Denver was so successful. I think it's why Miami was so successful this postseason. So like, I totally buy Jokic as a as a postseason force on the offensive end. 
Right, he's he's done it. He's had great offensive series against five different opponents. Uh, you know, a few di- a few legendary coaches in there as well. And yeah, his versatility to his offensive game, especially if uh, when, whenever the postseason arrives, he just becomes a great three point shooter. If that is also a thing, uh, you know, he's he's got that stretch element. He's got the post game. He's got the passing. He's also got that beautiful floater that he's really consistent with. Uh, in that uh, intermediate space, so yeah, I, I am uh, I am completely confident in Jokic as a as a postseason player, especially in the offensive end. The thing I'm curious about, and I would love to get your both of your takes on, is the defensive end. Of course, it started out horribly for not only Jokic but the Denver Nuggets as a team. Part of that was due to the fact that they didn't really have a traditional guard uh, due to the, due to uh, Harris and Barton both being out to start the playoffs. Uh, but, uh, you know, with when Harris got back, when it seemed like the team started to commit a little bit more to the defensive end, things got better. And it just continued to improve in the Clippers series as well. And there were moments where Jokic was genuinely pretty decent defensively, and it, and it might have been uh, precipitated by Draymond Green calling him out on TNT. I, I guess it has to go down to, you're right, how much credit do you give Draymond for riding a fire under under Jokic or how much was it like just being matched he was I mean the effort I don't think is not there sometimes I think it's obviously just physical gifts and not being as quick obviously just being just raked over the coals on a, on a pick and roll um, but up to recently I thought that he had done really good at, at jumping out on the ball handler at least using his hands to disrupt the pass and kind of getting back I mean you know ISO stuff can happen he has those funks where and it was less of that in the postseason as well I don't even remember one coming up off offhand but Defensively, I think of Jokic, I think of those frustration fouls, but he done a lot better. Does it coincidentally go besides, uh, you know, Draymond Green saying something? I, I don't know if, I, if if Green deserves that credit, but I, I, I want to give it to him because you're right. Right after that, it seemed like whether collectively or more than likely scheme, but defensively, the Nuggets ratchet up a little bit. And you're right, although Jokic is never going to be in consideration for, you know, defense player of the year or anything even close to that. It did seem like the effort was there. I just don't know if that was, thinking back, it's been a minute, if that was like more favorable matchups or, or what was done um, offhand. But at least effort-wise, you can definitely see that was there. I, I will just say that I think I've come around on Jokic's defense to the point where, like, you can build... I, I, I believe that he can be the best player on a title team. Obviously, that's because of his offense, but it's also because I think his defense has gotten to the point where, like, He's not just torpedoing you so much at the, at the most important position. Um, he, he mitigates some of his, you know, inability to move laterally and protect the rim and all that with his ability to get his hands in passing lanes, um, some of his strength, and then obviously his rebounding and the way that he turns those rebounds into, like, you know, dime outlet passes on the other end. Uh, I, I think that you can survive. I also think that like the Nuggets entering this offseason are going to be maybe after the Warriors, who I think have just like such a crazy range of, of outcomes. Um, I think the team I'm most interested in seeing what they do because like if they just upgrade on the margins, especially like at backup center, I just think if you if they got like a really solid defense to the backup center instead of Mason Plumley. Uh, then they could buy like 15, 20 minutes of, of defense from that guy. Um, and, and that might make the difference uh, in, in some of these playoff games. So like, I, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what they do. And, and again, I think that if Jamal Murray continues to do what he does offensively, then that affords you the ability to play a few more defensive-oriented players. Yeah, I, uh, I'm on the record saying that I would love to see Denver use Gary Harris's contract and a few of the, the lower level pieces with with draft picks to go after Drew Holiday. I would love to see uh, a core of of uh, Jokic, Porter Jr., Murray and Drew Holiday and, and Jeremy Grant and see what that uh, what that team could accomplish. I think it would be pretty nasty, but but you you made a, the the point that which is the reason why I I felt uh, we needed to talk about Jokic was that uh, 
you know, that, that he, you believe he's, he's now capable of being the best player on a title team. And, and I agree with that. And I think that's about the most important leap that a player, an individual player can take. If you're at that level, you're at the very top of the NBA. And that is, uh, that is crucially important for the Nuggets, not only uh, for next year, but moving forward. So, I mean, if we're talking best player on a title team, the top of the NBA, I feel like maybe we should just get it out of the way and talk about LeBron right now. Great transition. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to start. I'm going to start. I'll, I'll take him as one of my one of my five. I'll take one for the team. I'm sure we all all wanted to talk about him, but like, um, here's here's what I want to put out there. Uh, LeBron James it is LeBron James. Uh, and I think sometimes, like, the comparisons we do, whether it be, it's usually to MJ, um, but any historical comparisons, I, I think they're just kind of, I, I'm done with them. I'm not saying they're unfair to LeBron, because I think LeBron has, like, brought them upon himself <laughs> over the course of his career, whether it's, you know, not one, not two, not three, whether it's. I'm chasing a ghost, that whole thing, or, or him claiming that he knew he was the goat after 2016. Like he he invites this this chatter. Um, so I'm not saying like this is unfair to him. Wait, sorry. You saying the Wash King asked for this? The Wash King wants this attention. Right. Yeah. The, the everybody was calling him Wash King before the season. We know that. Uh, uh, no, but like, so that that's one thing. But like to me, I just. I just want to appreciate what LeBron is as his own player because I'm so sick of like, I mean, I heard, I heard uh, David Aldridge making this point where it's like the MJ comparisons are stupid because LeBron's actually more like magic, and I, I I'm just like no, he's not like he, LeBron isn't he's not a pass first player, like I think that that's an idea that's been out there that people sometimes use to like go against the MJ comparison, but it's like that's that's so absurd like if he would look to score every single time down the court if that's how he was defended. Like, LeBron is just, like, and, and, and just speaking about LeBron as a scorer, another thing that you hear is, like, KD's a better scorer than LeBron. And again, I think that's so ridiculous. Like, the reason that, <laughs> the reason that KD scores more than LeBron, that he has more scoring titles, is because he's by worse scorer so he draws less help and he's a worse playmaker and and passer so when he draws when he does draw help he just doesn't know how to handle it the same way LeBron does he has a lower basketball IQ he has less passing ability he has less strength all this stuff like LeBron James is to me one of the greatest scorers in the history of the game he's the best driver in the history of the game um He's one of the best finishers, both in terms of strength and finesse. And, like, it's because teams have to take that away because you would just lose every time that he uh, is, is put in the position to do what he did this year and, and win, win the assist title. He's never done that before. But, like, he's not Magic Johnson. I'm sorry. He's, he's not Michael Jordan at all. He's not Magic Johnson at all. He's LeBron James. And, like, we should just be comparing people to him at this point. We should not be comparing him anybody yeah that's uh you know those are all really good points i i will say one sort of counter to that is the idea that i think one thing that's kind of uh, you know lebron can make any shot on a basketball court but there the one thing that is sort of missing from his scoring repertoire is that sort of uh, go-to mid-range move um you, you know and and i think one of the points that you make about him being a great scorer, I think his greatest feature as a scorer is just his rim attacking and getting to the bucket and finishing around the basket. And that is the area of the court where if you get there, that's where the most help is going to come, which opens up the most passes to teammates. And he obviously is such a great passer, a willing passer, that he will make that when the rim is shut off. But the fact that he doesn't look to get to the mid-range as much as the likes of Michael Jordan and Kevin Durant means that he is often passing more than they would because those mid-range shots just don't draw as much help. 
No, that, that's a fair point, and I would say like the the one area that he is clearly a worse scorer than Durant, and obviously than Jordan, is if you're facing an elite defense late in the game, and it's a defense that is is again so elite that you either can't get to the cup, or when you do, you just don't draw as much help um, in those positions when like a pull up jumper is is the best thing you have. I'll take someone else. I just think overall, and this isn't like a regular season argument. I think this is true in playoff games too. I will take the overall pressure LeBron's scoring threat puts on a defense over the course of the game over Kevin Durant. That's that's kind of my only point there. But that but that can be debated. Um, yeah, yeah. I would kind of piggyback on that. We've seen the pressure in, in, in the finals against the Warriors several times. You know, uh, I'd say um, game one of the 2015 series against the Warriors game. One of the 2018 series, I think, is one of his better games uh, against the Warriors as well, where, you know, he is just the single-minded hub carrying the team and, like, all focuses on him. And even with that, because you know the passes he can do, and if you watch any of those highlights, you're seeing the, the mid-range jumpers, you're seeing the threes, but you're also seeing when defenses just commit and collapse on him, the great passes to players to, to get them wide-open shots because the constant pressure he puts as a scorer relentlessly. I'm not saying that scoring opens up his passing. I, I don't think that's it at all, but that he is just that dominant of a score. And I agree with you. Like, he's not a pass-first player. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting in terms of when you talk about, and I know, Simon, you, you and, and I think a lot of people have this fatigue talking about and, and comparing LeBron to MJ, but I'm just going to quickly give my stance on that, that, uh, you know, I've always been a proponent of, of MJ1, LeBron2 for the last couple of years, but I think with this, LeBron showing that at nearly age 36 that he can be, you know, the, the best player on a title team or, you know, depending on how much you loved Anthony Davis's performance, the, the 1B on a title team, uh, he has proven that uh, he belongs in that discussion and at the very at the very worst now, I would say the MJ-LeBron debate is a 1A-1B discussion. And, uh, yeah, what what he did at this age is absolutely phenomenal. And what's so scary, and, and he's, he's, he's shown it this year, is even a slightly less athletic LeBron is still so dominant on the block. He's, he's developed, uh, he's continued to develop his jumper, and he's, he's pretty dangerous from three now as well. Uh, and and obviously he's he's always he's going to be a great passer at the age of fifty. So uh, he um, he's constantly and with his size and strength he's going to be able to continue to put pressure on the rim and he can just do it in different ways. Whereas as a twenty year old he could do it by driving from outside the three point line. Now he can do it, especially with lineups where you know they're they're playing Davis at the five and LeBron at the four. He can put pressure on the rim by just posting up. So yeah, it's it's scary already what he has accomplished, and it's even scarier to think about what's still to come. Yeah, and I'll I'll say I mean first of all, totally agree. I I, I was not saying LeBron was was washed before this season, but at the same time, like the level that he showed me this year has extended out the timeline that I had in mind of him being an elite player, like. I think it'll be a few, it looks like it'll just be a few years at this point before he's not like capable of being at least a one B like you said on a title team. And, and with regards to MJ, I mean, I, I don't mean to say I don't love to debate who's the greatest player of all time. Um, it, it is it is uh, tiring though because it is something that uh, and and I'm part of the problem because I've had about five episodes of that debate on this podcast. But uh, it is no, something that literally everyone is talking about. Yeah, and I, I love to engage in it. I, I still I still have MJ as my number one. This I do think LeBron has kind of moved. I don't know if I want to stay into the same tier because um, I, I think if if he's in the tier, I, I could see him being argued as better. I'm just still not quite there, but I think you could argue that he's about on the same level at this point. And I, I that's a discussion that like I always love to have. Um, but I think more to what I was getting at is just like. Because he is on that MJ tier, or, or very close to it, it's just like, MJ is MJ in our minds. Like, we know who MJ is, we know who Bill Russell is, we know who Kareem is, we know who Magic is. Like, those guys are just who 
they are, and because LeBron is active, I think we just still compare him to those guys. And I think he's been doing it for so long at this point that it's just like he, he should just be. He should just be. When we talk about his game, his his own thing. so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. Please, if you can, if you have a moment, go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating and review, preferably five stars. And uh, if you could give any thoughts about what you like about the show, that would be much appreciated. We are also on Spotify, so uh, you can give us a rating on there as well. If you'd like to find some other content outside of this podcast, you can find me on Twitter, at Garrett Bougay, that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-B-U-G-A-Y. I will be uh, tweeting various uh, NBA thoughts as well as some, some thoughts on some other uh, interests of mine, including soccer and film and television. So uh, if you're looking for some of my takes throughout the, the course of the week, you can find me there. You can find my co-host, Corbin Ford, on Twitter at CorbinNBA. That's C-O-R-B-A-N-N-B-A. So uh, he, uh, he does, a, d- does a good job on Twitter as well. He's very active. I'm also doing uh, some work as a contributor for Rip City Project, which uh, does all things Blazers. So if you're looking for some written content, you can check those websites out. Corbin also does his own pod on the side called NBA Today. Uh, he, uh, he does some, some fun work over there, so, so please, I encourage you to check that out. But uh, thanks so much again for, for listening, and have a great rest of your day.